1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: Hello and welcome to another of Autocar's special 50 Years of BMW M podcasts. I'm Deputy Road Test Editor Richard Lane. I'm delighted to say that today I'm joined by none other than CEO Frank van Meel, and Frank's actually uh, brought along an unexpected guest in the form of M's esteemed R&D chief, Chief Engineer, Dirk Hacker. So welcome, gentlemen, and just to get us going, would you please give us a one-line description of your respective day jobs,
0: starting with you, Frank? My day job is all about emotion and motorsports, and actually, it is the best job in the world. Fair. Dirk?
1: I think I have the best job in the world, and my job is to lead a very famous and creative team.
2: Right, so we're out here in Arizona for the launch of two new M cars, brand new M cars actually. We've got the M2, which is the smallest, lightest, least powerful car in the lineup, and the other is the XM, which is a 700 horsepower plug-in hybrid SUV that comes in at about 2700 kilograms so what's the thread if there is one that links these two cars
0: well I think they are on the same bookshelf they are the bookends of our high-performance family so the M2 is the entrance into the M world high performance world and the uh, XM is the extroverted brother on the other side or sister on the other side of that bookshelf They couldn't be more different, I think, but at the same time, they share the same passion for uh, outstanding performance. So I think they are like in a family. They are siblings, but they couldn't be more uh, different from each other. So in 2023, then, which
2: of those is the more important car for M as an organization? So if you could only pick one to have, let's say, which one would you have?
0: Well, I'd say it's the XM because it is a new kind of family member. The M2 is the second generation M2. Of course, it is differing from the first generation, um, but it is already a known member in the family. The XM is completely new.
2: And Dirk, how much of a challenge is it to deliver a car like the XM? I mean, you guys can develop cars like the M2 in your sleep by now. You've been doing it for long enough, but uh, just tell us a little bit about the XM.
1: So when we start with the XM, so we have a, a final vision. What will be the character of the car? We call it the rock star. So we want to um, build a car, design a car with a very expressive lifestyle exterior and interior on one side and on the other side, but with the same soul. I think like the M family overall. So precision, agility, torque, momentum, and when we start with that, we 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 know. With the M2, we have um, to fulfill an expectation. And with the XM, we have the chance to get a surprise for for the customers, uh, but with the same ingredients of the M family. And that was the beginning of the story. And I think it it works very well. And it's a surprise also for the M family and for the customers um, to see how this car is performing on one side, and on the other side, how expressive culture and luxury it can offer to the customers
2: and i noticed driving the xm for the first time that uh, you do get in it and that 50 yard handshake is familiar it feels any for for one of a better word uh, just the way the sort of ride characteristics unfold at low speed and just the first time you turn the wheel so is that just a question of you know dialing that feel into the car is that a case of using the same sort of uh, bushings and you know similar hardware in the, in the subframe steering suspension systems?
1: I, I think we have the expectations and the, the experience, for example, with, uh, with the X5M and X6M. And we use this experience also to increase for the XM in the setup, in the design, in the performance. And it's a philosophy on one side and on the other side we also take some parts out of the um, X5, X6M to um, design this um, feeling in the XM.
2: So Frank, just to go back to you, is M perceived differently in different parts of the world um, or by different demographics? Because in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in in Germany, we, um, we have a very, very ingrained understanding of what an M car is, which is basically and slightly childishly uh, it boils down to a beautifully balanced fast saloon that can incinerate tires at will and that's usable every day, uh, but that might not be the case everywhere in the world.
0: Well, it also depends on how long in the world you have been uh, accompanying the, uh, the history of BMW M and of course if you grew up with M uh, over the past decades with m3 and later on m5 that is more or less or even longer ago with the three liter cSL then that is uh, what you um, what you feel uh, m is all about but uh, of course the emily uh, the family has grown over the years um, with additional vehicles so uh, it's not only the three liter cSL that fortunately came back last year as the crowning glory of our anniversary year but um, the family grew with, um, with M4, with, uh, we had M6, now we have M8, uh, and we have X3M, X4M, X5M, X6M, and now XM. So sometimes in the countries it depends where you jump into the brand. Here in the United States, where we currently are presenting our cars, it's all about racing because BMW entered the market in the early 70s with uh, Bavarian Motorworks. Um, it was even written on the cars to make sure that no one thinks it is British Motor Works, by the way. Um, so that is what uh, people feel when they talk about M in the United States. It's more um, motorsports and racing, and but also on the other side, it's our big plant in Spartanburg, where the X models come come from, and of course the United States is the SUV market, so they do relate also a lot to SUVs here, and they also feel it's quite logic to have uh, SUVs from M. Whereas in Europe, it came later on and it fits the brand because they drive like M, but still, like you say, when you grew up with M3, that is what you uh, relate to M the most, of course.
2: So is M becoming an SUV brand?
0: Uh, Well, I say the family is getting bigger, but I think uh, the center of the brand is the M3. Uh, and But, of course, the, um, the tastes differ, so there are people saying, well, the M2 is the new M3, or I like the M5 better because, by the way, that was earlier than the M3 in the history of M, and uh, others say I do like the the, uh, the big X's because I want to have an SUV that drives like an M. So the family's getting bigger, and um, but I think the core of the family is M3. So.
2: Let's just go back to the idea of what an M car is then, uh, because the industry is in a constant state of flux at the moment. And, and what an M car is, is going to change. It's already changing with the adoption of plenty of uh, raised ride height models. Um, but what does mechanical interaction look like in the EV era? Dirk, this is, this is probably one for you. And what opportunities do you have to make an M EV uh, lovable because, you know, to be honest, that's what M cars are all about. They've got, to get you, uh, they've got to get you in the heart, haven't they?
1: I think we can start also a little bit in the history. So when we, for, for example, for the first time installed the MX drive as a four-wheel drive system, so we have an idea to control a four-wheel drive system for the first time. I think we arranged it in a very well way. Uh, way. So the M5 in, in 2017 was a starting point, for example, to regulate all the four wheels. Later on, with the M3 and M4, the new generation, we added um, a very actuator um, near um, activation of the slip control system, so we can reduce the delay between ECUs to get better performance. And we take the look in the future, and we, we, we are thinking about to use electric motors on every wheel to drive the car and to brake the car, as an engineer, I think you can see there are a lot of opportunities in the timing, in the um, precision of the regulation, and also in the function. So, for example, with a four EM four electromotor car, you have the possibility for recuperation in a, in a very big um, numbers. Um, it's not unthinkable um, in these days. Also. The delay and the time of the regulation we can shorten by uh, 10 times about that. Mm-hmm. So it's much more precise, it's much more, it's higher because the, uh, the electromotors also offer more power, more torque. So I think there is nearly the ultimate um, possibility for the regulation of the driving dynamic if you use all the four wheels. So we see a lot of opportunities and chances with the new technology.
2: So, look, tell us a little bit more about this concept car that you revealed last October. It's a bit of a mashup of an I4 and an M3. It's got these four motors. Um, What I really want to know is, does it do skids as naturally as a petrol M3?
1: In in some criteria, it's better than a natural M3. So we have to work on a a lot of technologies. For example, the high-voltage storage is a bottleneck in these days. But we can see with the whole concept, we have the chance um, to build up a, a next step, a big step in driving dynamics for the future. And we have also some comparison to the um, actual M3. And we are sure that we have a good idea, not the final solutions, but a very good idea and concept for the future to build on electric um, mobility and, and MCAR, and really true MCAR. And
2: how does that work, just in terms of the drive line? then? Have you got a mechanical limited-slip differential in no, the back of that no, car? No. So just explain how that drive line actually functions.
1: The drive line is very simple. So we have four electromotors, one for every wheel, and the rest is only um, software.
2: So the motors, are, they're, they're mounted quite far inboard.
1: They are inboard, in inboard. so we have it central on the, in the front axle and the rear axle. So we have in the middle of the car two engines with drift drive shafts, mm-hmm. um, but anything else. And it's complete um, independent front to rear and we can activate um, for acceleration, for deceleration, individual, every wheel.
2: And how much of a challenge though is it going to be? I mean, you talk about that kind of layout and it's obvious that you could do anything with it. You could get the car to do a, do a spin on the spot. You know, yes. with, with, with that kind of technology, but it's about making it feel natural, you know, a typical old school M car. You put it into a bend, you feel the grip, yes. you feel it load up on the outside, and then you can almost, you can almost perfectly predict that moment when, when you're going to get that locking function. And that's what's so important. It's just about, I guess it's going to become more and more important to have the right software calibration and the right people in those roles yes. to really understand what it is to be a petrol head and to love that M-car driving personality.
1: Yes, that's right. And and for the future, we also change a little bit um, the philosophy because in the the actual cars, we have different control units. And for the future, we want to have a central idea. We call it also Hand of God, um, who knows very in detail what wants the driver to do with the car, how to control the slip on every wheel to get this right feeling straight ahead, braking straight ahead, to turn in, to brake and turning in, and to modulate the forces on every wheel for this um, final um, performance and feeling in the car. And with the actuator of an electric motor, we have a much more precise and faster um, activation than with a combustion engine in these days.
2: Mm -hmm. So look, I don't want to get ahead of the game here with evs because we've still got combustion engines and the s 58 i think when we spoke last year at the nurburgring frank you said that the s 58 is is safe from a regulatory perspective for quite a long time yet i mean it will see out the decade won't it and am i right in thinking that m is actually still developing new engines perhaps not from scratch but
1: We will, we will do a next generation of the S- S58 also for the regulation points and we are very safe that we have a very good basic for, for the new regulation um, requirements.
2: And is it fair to say then that that is going to be a plug-in hybrid system that's going to basically bolt on to the S58 in the same way that the S68 has just acquired a, a PHEV system?
0: Not necessarily. Um, because <clears throat> if you talk about regulation, it's more about keeping the engine in our current cars also for a longer time. Because, I mean, the, the regulation is a constant process, a continuous uh, process, so uh, it's changing all the time. It's like the balance of performance in racing. Uh, it never stays the same for a long time, so you ha- always have to adapt, you always have to... Uh, like Dirk said, you have to do some developments on the engine to, uh, to bring it there, to, um, um, to comply with the new regulations. So that's, of course, the first step. Um, you can always think of applying plug-in hybrid uh, systems t- to, to engines as well. Uh, but, of course, it has to make sense in the specific car segment. And if you are in a specific car segment like in the M2, I wouldn't suggest to fit more uh, weight into the car to add a plug-in hybrid system.
2: Let's talk about the M2 briefly then, because if you look at the M2 and the M3 you've basically got the same pile of components, haven't you? And the difficulty comes in engineering a distinct personality into each car. Uh, it's not easy. If you've got the same engine, the same gearbox, which is even running the same ratios, you've got the same differential in the back. You've now got the same, basically the same wheel and tire package, so the same contact patch. And so beyond the obvious things, you know, in the UK, we only have a four-wheel drive automatic M3 and you know, the M2. You can have manual, and it's rear-driven. Beyond the, those obvious um, differences, how have you engineered Uh, a unique personality into the M2 this time around?
1: Uh, We we think um, with the car we have the chance to to create a more agile car, a more dynamic car and that um, based on the shorter wheelbase of 110 millimeters. So we use the same technique for the chassis but also for the drivetrain but we want to create this very special M2 feeling to be a little bit more dynamic, more agile, not nervous, very good controllable, but I think if you go with the cars, you can feel the difference between the M2 on one side and the M3 and the M4 on the other side. Um, it's a refinement of, of coil springs, of the shock absorbers, of the um, drivetrain. But the character is the more agile, the more dynamic. M2, it's a shorter car, it's a shorter wheelbase. Um, and we think also, it's a, it's a the, the cars, from the perf- performance issue, they are closer together than the predecessor because we have the chance for the first time in the M2 to use a lot of the components of the M3, M4, much more than the predecessor.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly grown-up and serious car. I mean, cross-country pace is wild and, and the composure it generates as well. I think, I think the old car had a real lovable road racer personality, but this new one is is just incredibly serious and incredibly fast. So what you're saying is the M3 versus M2 equation, is the difference is really defined by that wheelbase. But also yes. there must be differences in terms of um, you know, the softness of each end of the softness. car. Softness.
1: But I think it's the same story like we have when we create an M3 Touring or a convertible M4. So to have the idea how to use the same technology for a different character on the cars. And I think with the M2, we have the bookend um, to the the shortest wheelbase, the smallest car on one side. And on the other side, with the M4 convertible or M3 touring, we use nearly the same components to get this typical feeling. Mm -hmm. But I think you need an idea and a vision how an M car um, could work in the different derivatives. And I think um, there is no... um, it's not a challenge between the cars, because it's up to you what you want to have. More a Touring, or a Convertible, or a Sedan, or a Coupe in M4, or the shorter and more agile M2. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I guess we're expecting the M2, in Europe and America, we're expecting the M2 to, to outsell the M3.
0: Uh, <clears throat> yes, because uh, we split the volume between M3 M4 uh, in all the derivatives, and the M2 is one car only. Okay, but sure. It, that's a but of bit course, of if you add up the whole M3, M4 family, it will outsell the M2 by far. Okay, in that's total, quite interesting.
2: Um, just to come back to you, Frank. Then I've just come back from. Chile, and specifically a pilot plant that you'll know all about, that Porsche is involved in creating uh, what they're calling carbon neutral fuels. Uh, Now, in different parts of the world, there are different attitudes, timelines in respect to combustion engines. And even in the EU, there's scope for micro manufacturers and consultation on synthetic fuels. So does this present an opportunity for M in the future? And if it does, are you interested?
0: Well, I think it is a very complicated discussion because it's a geopolitical discussion. I mean, if you bring, if you break it down to technology, uh, of course for us it's also important because uh, also in racing we already use synthetic or renewable fuels, um, uh, and also it might be an idea for um, for regular street cars. Uh, but from a geopolitical uh, standpoint, it always comes down um, to uh, what am I going to use my primary, primary energy sources for to create renewable? How, me- how much primary energy do I have? Renewable primary energy and what am I going to use it for? Um, so there, there you start to disconnect the discussion between technology and what's possible and the future and what you would like to do. And I think renewable energy is a good thing if you have enough uh, renewable energy to create synthetic fuels Um, then they are a help. Uh, Of course, they don't help in local emissions, but they do help uh, in regards to the CO2 emissions worldwide. Um, But as I said, it's a very complicated discussion because you need to look at where is the energy to create this and is it renewable as well? Do we have enough of that or do we need that energy for something else? And it's also different in all all, all kinds of places in the world. But I think it's good. To address this issue, because it is one possibility for a sustainable future.
2: But it sounds like you think that synthetic fuels aren't going to prolong the development of new engines. They're just going to, um, you know, they're going to be used to supply existing fleet in a more sustainable way. If anything.
0: Well, I think that is at least, that should be one of the targets to, uh, to get that running, to uh, make the existing car fleet more sustainable in the future, no matter when it will change from combustion to electric or if it will change. But uh, I think it's, uh, it is a way that we should look at, um, at all over the world, of course. But that's not a discussion for a car manufacturer. That's more a discussion for, for regulators, for, for politics. Uh, to figure out um, how, is our, how are our sources of energy going to look like in the future. And there will not be just one source of energy. So that is also the question, um, and that's geopolitical again, because uh, of course there are some countries that don't have so much wind or sun, um, and there are countries that rely on nuclear energy, there are countries that rely on still on coal, uh, so that is a very, very complicated discussion. But I think um, this is at least a significant part of a future. Um, but it will depend on how the world is going to work with renewable um, fuels in the future and energy.
2: Okay. And just to wrap that up then, is it is it fair to say then that M, you, you, you're not sort of... Uh, hanging your hat on the idea of being able to use synthetic fuels in the future your your product strategy is now you know almost entirely leaning towards electrification
0: uh, yes because that is the road that is already clear uh, because the regulators already made decisions towards electromobility, and of course we have to focus on what is the direction in the world that we are currently going. And of course, it is also from a sustainable standpoint uh, a solution for uh, getting uh, emission-free driving also in, in all the cities. So it is a quite a clear path that is already written. Um, but at the same time, we are also looking at um, um, at other kinds of of sources of energy like hydrogen or also renewable fuels. Uh, But it is not the main path, because currently, uh, especially in Europe, but also in China, but even in the US, there is already, let's say, the regulators are going very clearly in one direction. And you can't complain about that or not, but it's like the balance of performance. If that is the ruling that is written, you have to make sure you can comply in the future with that rule set.
2: So if that's the future, I just want to delve into the past briefly. You might not be able to say too much about this. but it's a mark that's close to many a petrolhead's heart. So I have to ask, Alpina, we've always loved that M and Alpina have taken a subtly but distinctly different approach to, uh, to making very fast BMWs. Uh, Frank, what, if anything, can you tell uh, lovers of the Alpina brand about its future and the kind of conversations that are, are perhaps taking place behind the scenes in, in Munich and Buchlo at the moment?
0: Well the question of Alpina uh, I had to answer already for I'd say over the past eight years because the question always was how does that work and um, looking back you can see that always the uh, let's say the match between M and Alpina was was quite good because you just described it perfectly how we we um, matched to each other we did not have any overlap it was more Alpina uh, being more the Torquey cars with uh, a different kind of luxury inside them, and M being more, um, let's say, uh, towards uh, motorsports. Uh, so that was a perfect combination. But I never commented on Alpina, and I will not also I also will not comment on Alpina in the future. But you can be sure that we will have a way also between M and Alpina that will be just fine in the future as well.
2: So it wasn't your decision to make an M3 Touring that made them finally go, ah, oh, forget it. We can't do this anymore.
0: Well, that's a different story, the M3 Touring. Uh, uh, that was just, let's say, a uh, yeah. I think Dirk can answer that question better because he was involved at the time in making that decision. It was more a because we can and uh, we want to. Okay.
2: All right, Dirk, answer me this. Why did it take so long to make an M3 Touring? Because you did this E46 concept it was a one-off, fully functional, looked fantastic. And then you didn't even admit that you'd made it for, for more than 10 years, 15 years.
1: More than that, yes. So the idea, we, we, we start with the M, with the first idea for the M3 touring. We start on a, on a winter test in, in IAPLOG. And it was not an, an order by the company to do that. It was more an idea nearly sitting around the table like that, with some guys, with the team, I have. Um, we are thinking about mm, what do you think, would it be a nice idea to check, to, to do a next um, prototype to see how it will work um, M3 Touring based on the M3 Sedan, the new model. And That was the very first moment and we are thinking about that and we are checking how many parts we have to, to change, to modify, how many parts we can use from the Sedan And it was a step-by-step and it takes about three months. Then we built up a prototype um, um, based on an accident um, M3 from the Nürburgring on one side and on the other side on the pre-series car from the 3-series Touring. We fixed the both cars together, the both bodies, the both technologies. And then we see a car that looks um, quite well. And we thought, oh, let's um, show it to other guys. Perhaps we have this time the chance to get um, a positive feedback with that. And it works um, brilliant from the first very first moment. So there was no order, but there was a possibility. And I think that's also the M-Spirit that you, if you have a good idea, you can show that. And if there is the opportunity also to do it in reality, then you will get the chance um, to, to get the confirmation for that. And that was a story behind. So it was um, after nearly two decades, but it's a complete different team. But the next, the second um, um, chance we used um, to do the car. So
2: you're saying it just came down to the personalities on the yeah. team. So the reason we didn't have one in the last generation or in the E90 generation was just because there wasn't enough willpower or yes. curiosity to make it happen.
1: Yes, that's right, but it's not the... the, the it's other it people, that's right, but from generation to generation, the spirit is the same one. So it, it works a little bit since 50 years in the same way.
0: But I wouldn't say that we had the wrong people uh, those decades ago. It also yeah. has to, you have to have this window of opportunity right. where, it, where it just fits in, like Derek said, because you start to think, you have an idea you build something and then you of course it also has to be let's say a business case at the end of the day and some decades ago we were not selling so many M3s as we do today yeah. and we our customer base is not our fan base was not that big but now since M is so big and we have so many fans longing for for even more Uh, It made sense because now the window of opportunity was we do have a lot of customers out there who want to have something like that and in the past we also had some fans of a M3 touring but not as many as right now so uh, I say it was just everything um, came together at the right time. You always have to have the right idea at the right time. But I mean, it was
2: such a long time coming. You've done it now and people are losing their minds about it. But I remember on the, um, you know, the previous generation M3, people were, were building their own M3 tourings because they were so desperate to own one. But anyway, so that was a, it was almost a bit of a skunk, skunkworks type project. You kind of built it, developed it and then presented it to the board, presumably as a bit of a fait accompli. Was that the case with the M4 CSL, or was that much more structured and transparent? Was that uh, was that an order to build that car? Um,
0: Well, I say, well, I think um, that's. I must try to remember what it was, but I think about six, seven years ago, we we uh, communicated that we, when we came out with the M4 GTS, that that would be the last GTS uh, on a car because we would go back to the CSL. Uh, logic and that in future we would, um, in some car lines, also start to offer CS models. So the, the, uh, the competition version, the CS version and the CSL version. So that was the strategy that we then not only communicated externally, but also internally. And with that, we also already started logging in more or less those versions into our timelines. So that was more than, uh, it was not an order. It was, let's say, we we did that order to ourselves and we just got the confirmation in the company at that time that we are going to do cars like that in the future. We always have to talk to the board of BMW Group with our strategy, but once it's signed off, we do have a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, freedom to to act after that. So for that, it is, uh, that's a little bit different. That was a longer-term uh, strategy already. So the
2: only question now is, which comes first, M2 CS or M2 CSL? Because Probably
0: that's a nice question.
2: Let's <laughs> assume they're both in the timeline, though. I very much look forward to driving them, Frank. You're in a bit of a purple patch at the moment. The M5 CS was just unbelievably good car to drive it. It's got more precision and more and a better ride quality, more fluidity than the regular M5, which is already an excellent super saloon. It's a real benchmark. And then you've done M3 Touring. You've done M4 CSL. Uh, there's a lot of exciting things coming out of Garching at the moment. Is this set to continue, or are things going to settle down a little bit now and uh, we'll just go back to, you know new models when we expect them?
0: Um, uh, Of course both, because we will never stop having good ideas about special cars and at the same time, of course, we also have to bring out new cars or successor cars to to the ones that are currently running. But I think the overall idea of having our portfolio of high-performance cars, which more or less will remain the same in the future, because now from M2 to XM I think it's quite complete, um, that is going to continue, but also we, uh, because we're quite happy with the lineup of cars. Uh, but at the same time, our strategy of making uh, some special uh, versions of those cars will also remain in the future. But it's not like that, that it is uh, like a cooking recipe that you can always predict. We are going to do now exactly this car at that time and there will be a CS or a CSL of that car. Of course it will. No. Um, we always take a, a look, does it make sense right now, um, uh, does it fit in, um, and are we happy with what we do there or not, is it, is it worth the uh, the logo on the car or not.
2: That's an interesting point you make, cause my next question was going to be about the 128Ti, um, and transverse-engined cars, something that M normally doesn't really have anything to do with at all. Um, do you look at something like the 128Ti and think, maybe there is a an actual full M car there. And also, how much involvement did you, did your department have, Dirk, in the conception and development of that car? Or was that a 100% AG job?
1: This car was a um, 100% AG car, the 128 Ti. So, we are not working on, on a concept like that in these days. For the future, I think, um, it can be a discussion, but I think it's—I'm not sure that is that this is um, the, the right um, M message for the future. So I'm not sure with that.
2: I, j- I only asked because I, you know I did a, a group test with the new Honda Civic Type R recently, and there was an RS3 there, and my God, these cars have got so serious and so fast. And maybe 10 years ago was not the time for M to associate itself with with that class but i mean you know in the era of a 400 horsepower 65000 euro rs3 perhaps uh, you know the moment has come especially with amg as well and the a class
0: well i think for us it uh, we do have some difficulties to uh, relate to four cylinder engines in the high performance segment um so for us, that is a step we never were willing to take uh, in the end performance segment. Of course, we do. But in high performance, um, I mean, the, the engine characteristics, uh, but also the challenges towards regulations and also in the future are, are a thing that, that made us say, no, we're not going to do something like that. But maybe Dirk can say some, some more specific things about four cylinders. Problem.
1: On the other side, you have talked about the RS3 six, uh, RS, um, with 65,000 euros about, so it's close to the M2. And I think we don't have to forget that in this segment, the M2 is a different offer, but not so far away from an 3 or something like that. I think the Civic is a little bit different, but when we start with the first generation with a predecessor of the M2, this was um, a challenger for R45 and also the old um, RS3
0: but I think the the RS3 is a different kind of breed by the way because it's not a four-cylinder it's got the the iconic five-cylinder engine and that's I think that is something that is also an iconic engine for itself and for us the iconic engine is the six-cylinder inline engine with the rear wheel drive so I think those are just two different characters and the four cylinders are a different kind of breed so that's pretty emphatic then and perhaps unsurprising as well.
2: Um, I'm just going to end on a couple of quick fire questions for you both. So Frank, if you could choose one car from the M back catalog to keep forever, which one would
0: it be? That's that's a mean question. I've got six kids and if you ask me which one I do like the most, I'd answer it depends on the day. But if I... Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon, I you know, um, for me it is looking back to all the cars. I always like new cars. It's a little bit, uh, I had this discussion with Jochen Neerpasch. I have to talk a little bit longer, sorry about that. But he was asked, what car do you want the most? And he said, I don't care about the history because that's where I came from. I like the new ones, I take the M4 CSL. For me, it is, I'm working on all the new cars right now. So I know them by heart. I'd rather look back and say which one I would like to keep Forever and uh, for me, that would be the M1. What about you, Dirk?
1: In the actual model range, the M3 Touring, because I think there is a personal relationship. If I take all over the generations, also the E46 M3 CSL could be could be um, the first choice. about that,
2: did you see that someone in the UK had converted it to a dropped a manual box into it? Okay, how does that make you feel?
1: It could work, but I won't. I, I wouldn't um, change the the um, original um, setup of the car.
0: Next question. Favorite moment in an M car. Race of Legends two thousand twenty two M two Sears racing, and that was at the the Nurburgring, wasn't it? That was at the Nurburgring. Yeah. Yes. Wow.
2: And you had like Johnny Giacotto. and
0: yes, all crazy guys, and <laughs> um, we were eleven. Um, because number 12 couldn't come. But we we were 11 crazy guys, and everyone was trying to win. It was a 30-minute race uh, on the Grand Prix course. And uh, since I was the organizer, um, and I was at starting position number 10 out of 11, I did a reverse starting grid and Bill Orbelin, the guy that was really the fastest of the whole pack, but the other ones were fa- as fast as well, was with Johnny Cicotto, Steve Soper, with so many crazy guys, and they were all pushing it like the old days. Uh, Bill Orberlin said, you know, I said before we started the race, no matter what happens, don't take out the boss. Now that you've changed the rules, that rule no longer applies. So they were all having the, the knives between their teeth. And we already lost the first three cars in corner number one because everyone was just hitting it. But it was, it was a great moment. It was, it was very emotional. And, and the race car is also so easy to drive. So it's fun. You're really having fun with a lot of crazy people in cars, about cars, about racing, and about racing against each other. And it was just uh, it was one of the greatest moments. I remember going in the paddock afterwards
2: and it certainly looked like uh, we were, know, had a lot of fun we were some all, crazy people. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah,
0: and especially if you watched the race between Steve Soper and Johnny Cicotto the last five rounds, they were going, I mean, they were just going next to each other and no one wanted to let the other one pass and they were going over the curbs they were even on the straight they were like in Ben hur they were hitting each other on the side on the straight Uh, it was really it was so emotional old habits die hard
2: yes and uh, come on tell me something from uh, from the development department at m
1: i think um, the, the my favorite moment is when we do the final confirmation of a setup of a new car on and at the nürburgring So to see what will be the final result also for the customers with a a new product running on the track, but also outside of the track to get this feeling, okay, it works and it's, it's fine done. And that's all times a very, very great moment.
2: So this sign-off for every car happens at the Nürburgring and then the surrounding roads?
1: Not only, but mainly on the Nürburgring for the final confirmation. So the way to the final confirmation is also on our test tracks in South France, in in Ayerblock, in in Scandinavia and so on. But it's the final confirmation that the car works very fine for powertrain, chassis and everything else is um, near to the Nürburgring.
2: And if something bad happens at the Nürburgring, you just use the wreckage to make a new concept car? Like the M3 Touring. <laughs> it's nope, not problem. bad. It's a win-win. Yes. <laughs> Frank Meel and Dirk Hacker, thanks very much for your time. Thanks to you for listening. You can find the new M2 review and video on the AutoCAR website. And as always, there are plenty of other videos, podcasts, and stories available both digitally and in print.